Amen. You guys can have a seat. My name is Eric Hovis. Uh, for those who don't know, my, I'm the lead pastor here in New City Church. Uh, if it's your first time with us, we're so glad that you're with us today. Uh, we've been journeying through the book of John. Uh, we've been praying for, that people would believe in Jesus and that people would find true life in Jesus. Uh, but I've got something I want to bring up today that is very important to our text. Uh, and it's about some of the best TV show series that are out there, okay? I have absolutely zero facts to, to prove this. Um, but some of the three best TV shows ever are Andy Griffith, Seinfeld, and The Office, okay? There are certainly other great shows out there um, that I love. But there's something about these three shows that, uh, that makes them so great, and it's not their greatness. <laughs> uh, it's that uh, they're just average. Like, they're just ordinary shows. Uh, like, Seinfeld is a show that has a show about nothing, it's just like average, ordinary, everyday people. And it's funny because of how average and true it all is. The office is the same way. Like, no, I know Dwight and, and uh, Michael Scott, they're, they're not very ordinary. Um, average, yes, right? But like, you know, I, I literally felt like Jim for four and a half years because I worked for a paper company and sold paper. But, you know, that's just a fun fact. But, you know, I also love the great classic Andy Griffith. Uh, because of just the show. It's like a common, ordinary life of a sheriff in, in a small town, North Carolina. There's nothing flashy about it, nothing over the top. It's just everyday uh, common folk, which just kind of like really kind of gets to my heart some. Uh, it just really resonates because uh, I really just appreciate average and ordinary. You know, a few years ago, I was uh, wrestling with God's call on my life, and a friend of mine rec recommended a book called Ordinary. And at first I was like, okay, uh, I get it. I know like I'm a, just like an average, ordinary dude. Um, and then I read the book uh, and it all kind of clicked for me. And, it, and maybe you guys have felt this tension because our culture loves fast, big, uh, grand. There's, not, there's like things that are constantly on the move. Like we love the next big thing. We love grand achievements. We love seeing breakthrough. Big crowds are celebrated. And in sports, the team that wins it all is the only team that ends their season cheering and in full celebration. Uh, like you don't see teams ending their last game, cheering and celebrating for, the losing, uh, for losing the last game. Like ending the season eight and eight is like celebrating mediocrity. And, and let's be honest, I don't know many parents uh, that rock a bumper sticker that says my kids are average students at their elementary school. Like that just doesn't happen. And if we're, if we're honest, the church can be the same way. I mean, I said just last week, we are praying for a revival in our city. Like we're praying for the next great awakening. We're praying for God to do far more and far better than we could ever ask or imagine. And we hear these things and we're like, well, that doesn't seem so ordinary. And then we realize there's this tension in the Christian life that we all have to hold where we see a person's life change radically in an instant through salvation, but yet transformation is often a long, slow process that happens over a lifetime. The, the, the Christian life is full of miraculous urgency mixed with tension, with the tension of a tearful patience and like a necessary slowness. You know, we, we say we value here missional urgency, which denotes quick, rapid, don't wait, don't stop attitudes towards the lost and the unreached. Like we want to do whatever it takes. Well, we also at the same time say we value authentic relationships, which we know take time and patience. And there's a slowness needed to build trust in depth. The Christian life is full of these tensions. And what I love about Christianity and the Christian life is that God calls us to extraordinary things. But those things are accomplished through remarkably ordinary means and methods. 
Oftentimes, uh, when we see what looks like radical obedience to do hard things, it's actually better seen as just a bunch of small steps, small ordinary steps of obedience that culminated in another slightly bigger step of obedience. Which is why I love our passage today, because we see God work both through the ordinary and also the extraordinary. As we'll see throughout the book of John, uh, the single greatest and most extraordinary thing in the life of a person is for God to open their eyes and see, to see and believe that Jesus is the Son of God that came, away, that came to take away the sins of the world, which leads us to our main idea. God leads people to follow Jesus through both ordinary and extraordinary methods. We'll see in our passage today, several different people begin following Jesus, and these guys, they're considered his first disciples. And most of these occurrences that we'll see happen, they happen through very ordinary methods. There's, there's one of these occurrences, however, that maybe uh, doesn't seem so ordinary and is a bit more uh, extraordinary. Maybe we could say just kind of out of the ordinary. Well, yet at the same time, in our extraordinary occurrence, uh, there's still a lot of ordinary things going on, uh, but Jesus comes in and brings in the extra. (laughs) Um, So that being said, we're going to walk through our passage, um, see these several different men and how God worked through them, and in the process, we'll see two basic ideas on God's methods for bringing people to Jesus, which leads us to our two big themes. God uses both, number one, ordinary methods, and number two, extraordinary methods. Ordinary methods and extraordinary methods. Uh, We'll look at our passage. We're just going to walk through it, uh, get to our two points. And at the very end of our time, we're actually going to have a riddle. So that'll be fun. But what I don't want us to lose sight of in our time is that these people, these disciples, what we know, they ended up turning the world upside down, sparking a movement of God after Jesus left the scene. But again, it was mainly through very basic, ordinary means and simple obedience. And then God brings in the extra. And look at our first chunk of Scripture, starting in verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them, following, and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. So here we see that we have John the Baptist, uh, who we looked at last week, and and as we just read, John the Baptist, the next day, uh, he saw Jesus. And John was with two of his disciples. And John sees Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And what we notice here is that as soon as John finds out who Jesus is, uh, that he's the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, John's excited. Like he's, he's thrilled and he goes and he tells his boys and he says, behold, look, the Lamb of God is the Son of God. And because John told them this and showed them Jesus, they decided to then follow Jesus. And Jesus notices and says, what are you seeking? Like, what are you looking for? What are you searching for? And, and they clearly missed the question because they didn't answer it. Uh, But Jesus kind of saw right through it, saw right through them, and they knew that they were searching for something. And and what we see here, that they didn't fully know who, they didn't know who he was. That they called Jesus the rabbi, and they, they they thought Jesus was just a teacher. But then Jesus invited them in, we see, like, seeing his warmth, seeing Jesus' welcoming spirit, showing Jesus' hospitality, uh, that he spent, the, and then he spent the whole day with them. And look what it says next, starting in verse 48. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. 
He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And what we see here is that after these guys spent time with Jesus, they knew that just by being with him, that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the anointed one, that he was the one they had been waiting for that would rescue them. And something I want, us to, I want to ask us all today for us to consider before we really get into our first point is that whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, Jesus, just as Jesus asked, uh, let me ask the same question. Like, what are you seeking? What are you searching for? What are you, what are you longing for? If you're not a Christian and you're here today, ask yourself that question. What is the longing of your heart? Is it connection with people? Is it success? Is it respect? Is it stability or control? Is it to feel good about yourself? And these, these are all just common desires and longings. And y'all listen, everybody, deep down inside of them, we have longings and yearnings that cause people to search. I believe this is true of every single person on the planet. Every person innately asks, who am I? What am I doing? Where where am I going? And what's my purpose? Uh, We all have these questions that we ask, and oftentimes we fill those things with things that don't fully uh, satisfy those longings. And as we see in our text today, and as Jesus points out, these two guys were searching for something, and Jesus knew it. He could see it. And when Jesus spent time with them, they realized they were searching, what they were searching for, and it was Jesus Christ. They were searching for, for the Messiah. So much so that they wanted to go and tell others about what they had found. But you know what I know um, for those who profess faith in Jesus? I know that it's good and right to ask the same question to ourselves. What are we searching for? What is it that we're uh, longing for? Maybe, Maybe a spouse, maybe career advancement, maybe financial security, maybe it's relational connection, or maybe there's comfort or stability or respect. Just because we're a Christian doesn't mean these longings go away. And whatever it is, we all have them. I want to encourage us to remember that our primary and our greatest longing is Jesus Christ. Because as we all may know, it's very easy for these other longings to slip to the top of our priority list above Jesus without us even realizing it. And so for everybody in the room, let's just ask the question, what are the longings of our heart? And you know what? Just to throw it out there, I have a hunch that many of our sin struggles just may find its way back to some of those longings. And you know what else uh, I know? Is that Jesus sees those things. He sees our longings. And like we see in our passage today, Jesus wants to call us back to himself to follow him with our entire life. But that said, as we kind of transition back to our big idea about God's methods for getting people to follow Jesus, I do want to point out something here about this guy, Andrew, that I find strangely encouraging. Notice verse 40, how Andrew is identified as Simon Peter's brother. Like he doesn't say Andrew. No, he associates Andrew with his brother so people knew who he was. I mean, this happened to me all the time as a kid. And my brother and sister's friends, I was Eric, Ashley's brother, or uh, I was Eric, Dean's little brother. And the reason John did that is the same reason we do this. Like my brother and sister's friends, they knew my brother and sister better than they knew me. And so uh, they then associated me with them. And so that's what the author John is doing with Andrew. He's associating Andrew as Simon Peter's brother, who at the time of writing this letter was way more well-known than Andrew. Simon Peter is actually one of the more talked about disciples in, uh, in the gospel accounts. 
I mean, he's, he, he's the guy that doubted Jesus three times. Uh, he often put his foot in his mouth. He's also the guy at the end of the book of John, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus appeared to him and he spoke very intimately to him. Jesus also made the famous statement to Peter that Jesus would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Peter was also the guy that preached a 10-minute sermon at Pentecost and 3,000 people would be saved. And not to mention, he's also the guy that wrote First and Second Peter. Peter was a well-known guy, especially at the time the author, uh, John, wrote this book, which was towards the end of the first century. But here today, we see something interesting because we learn of a man named Andrew, who was Jesus' first known disciple. And I find Andrew's story very encouraging because he's the guy uh, that nobody really knew about. While at the same time, God really used Andrew. Andrew only comes up in three times in the book of John. First, it comes up here in our story today. And then secondly, in John 6, when, uh, when Jesus fed 5,000 people, he was the guy that brought the, the five loaves and the two fish to Jesus. And then lastly, he was the guy uh, that Philip went to in John 12 when they found out that they wanted to crucify Jesus, beginning Jesus' process to the cross. And so seeing that Andrew, he, he didn't have a big personality. He was an ordinary guy that was faithful. He wanted to serve and he wanted to be trusted, or he was trusted. And we see here what Andrew does is so simple and it's so ordinary, but God used it in extraordinary ways. Look what it, look what it says next, speaking of Andrew in verse 42. It says, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Andrew very simply brought his brother, Simon Peter, to Jesus, where Peter then encountered Jesus and he was given a new name and a new identity. Peter was once named Simon, son of John, also known as the son of Jonah. And Jesus showing a transformation he, he, would now called, he would now be called Peter, which is translated the rock. And we now know Peter would later help pave the way for the rock of Jesus to be a cornerstone of the church. But all that to say, God used Andrew's simple, everyday, ordinary obedience to bring his brother to Jesus in order to later turn the world upside down. Which leads us to our first point. God uses, number one, ordinary methods to establish his plans. Number one, ordinary methods. You know, it's, it's so easy to overcomplicate how God can work through us. Maybe thinking we have to do grand, extreme, and crazy things for Jesus in order for our life to count, where in reality, it's typically not the grand extremes that make our life count or, or, dreams, uh, or deems us useful to God's kingdom, but rather, as we see from Andrew, it's typically the ordinary, everyday, day in and day out faithfulness that makes our life count. I mean, think about the simplicity of this. Andrew sees Jesus and he follows him. And then he spends time with Jesus for a day. And then after being with Jesus, he goes, finds his brother and says, hey, you got to come see Jesus. And in that interaction, his brother Peter leaves transformed with a new identity and name. Literally all Andrew did was meet with Jesus, go find his brother and say, hey, come with me. I want to show you Jesus. And then Jesus changed his life. I mean, Jesus, Andrew did something very ordinary, but yet God used it in extraordinary ways. New City Church, this is what God has called us to do. If you're considered a follower of Jesus, God calls you to meet with Jesus, make friends, and then bring them to Jesus. Like, that's it. It's that simple. If you're wondering what you should do for the rest of your, of your life, I have absolutely no problem adamantly saying that's what you're to do. Like, do that. Find a job that you think you may enjoy, do it somewhere strategic for God's mission, spend time with Jesus daily, make friends, and bring them to Jesus. Like, that's it. 
There it is. That's your life plan. You know, uh, again, we say, we, we think we often need to do crazy extremes when in reality God calls us to do very mundane and ordinary things. You know, one of my all-time favorite classes that I took in seminary was, was on the persecuted church around the world, and it was fascinating. You know, my, my, my professor, he was a missionary for over 30 years in some of the hardest and most unreached parts of the world. I mean, he has a crazy life story. And that entire week, for, for eight hours a day, he literally just sat around and, and told stories, I mean, uh, that were tied to concepts around different uh, methodologies and mission strategies. And one of the things that he said over and over again about being a missionary in these totally unengaged, unreached parts of the world uh, where no one knew the name of Jesus, uh, which seemed like an extre- seems like a crazy extreme thing to do for Jesus, which is in many ways, yes, it is a big step. But in reality, what, we, what he would often say is even being a missionary most of the time is actually just doing very ordinary things just in a different place. You know, and, 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 and another, one of those, one of another, another one of the things that my professor often talked about was that he was, uh, he was not trying to be the Apostle Paul that would go around and start new churches in these unchurched areas. Like, he wasn't trying to be the one out front. No, in fact, he wanted to stay behind the scenes And he would often say he wasn't trying to be the Apostle Paul. He was trying to find the next Apostle Paul. I mean, he was literally doing exactly what Andrew did with Peter. He didn't do anything grand, but rather he just did very ordinary things. Again, he was a missionary for over 30 years, and he had a deep abiding relationship with Jesus. He made friends, and he tried to bring them to Jesus. And then he would disciple them and train them to be fierce gospel warriors in these unreached parts of the world where the name of Jesus was not known. I really mean this. Like some of the most influential disciple makers I know, they don't have big personalities. They're not out front leading. Most people have no clue they're doing what they're doing. But yet through their few deep relationships, discipleship relationships, over the long run, through multiplication, these guys are discipling and influencing a lot of people. Again, Jesus' first two disciples were brothers. One was behind the scenes, Andrew, and the other, Peter, he was more out in front. But both are important. But, but I think it's important for me. I want to keep moving here because we do have uh, two more guys that I want to see. Look starting in verse 43. The next day, it says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Again, slowly, day by day, Jesus is picking out a few more people. Like he was intentionally investing in them, a few people at a time. He started with Andrew. Andrew got his brother. And then now in that same village, Philip, uh, in that same city, Jesus found Philip. And in a very simple way, Jesus just said, hey, follow me. Showing again how Jesus spent time with people. He befriended them. He conversed with them. And once, once Philip encountered Jesus, just like Andrew did with Peter, look what he does with his friend Nathaniel in verse 45. It says, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So just like Andrew did with his brother, Philip goes and finds his friend Nathanael and said, We found Jesus whom Moses and the prophets wrote about. And so we see here that these uh, these guys have have a religious background. They knew the Old Testament. And Philip, he was excited and he encountered Jesus and he wanted his friends to know. But it wasn't as easy as it was with Andrew and Peter. Philip had to do a little convincing with Nathaniel. Look what it says in verse 46. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. 
Now, this seems like a little bit of a sly remark from Nathaniel, like a little jab at Nazareth. Um, Nazareth was a small town that apparently didn't have a great reputation. And what Philip says back to Nathaniel, who was skeptical, I think is actually really helpful for us in how we interact with people who are skeptical of Jesus and Christianity. So, so notice, what, uh, Philip di- notice Philip didn't argue with Nathaniel. Philip didn't get mad at him. He doesn't get defensive. He doesn't give him an hour-long apologetics lecture answering questions that he's not asking. No, he just says, you come and check it out for yourself. He says, come and see. And when we hear that language, come and see, it denotes, hey, you're coming with me. It's more like, hey, let's check this out together. Come with me and see for yourself. Again, Philip didn't do anything extraordinary here. He just went and found his friend and said, hey, I want you to come with me and see Jesus. New City Church, this is what it looks like to live on mission. This is what it looks like to point people to Jesus. We simply say, hey, let's look at the Bible, Bible together. Let's explore this together. A really simple, a really simple. Invite people here on Sunday and then follow up with the conversation. You know, I saw some t- statistics this week that were both really encouraging uh, and also a bit discouraging all at the same time. I'll give you the discouraging ones first uh, in regards to people just coming to church. It said that 2% of people that come to church come through an advertisement, um, which actually doesn't seem so great, okay? Um, And I'm not sure if this is good or bad, but it said 6% of people come because the pastor invited them and another 6% by an organized evangelism effort, uh, which means when you break this down, for every 20 people that come to our church, about three of them, they'll come from the paid staff and organizational efforts, uh, which for me, who spent a lot of time thinking about these things, that just doesn't seem so great. But then check this out. You know why 86% of people come to church? Why 17 out of 20 people come to church? Because people like you, not me, people like you uh, invite them. Like you give them a personal invitation and then invite them on Sunday to come and see. In fact, we found this to be true uh, with most of our first time guests here at New City. We have people mark, how did they hear about us? And the vast majority, uh, they come because of a personal invitation, a relationship from someone that invited them. Most people uh, don't come to church for the first time for the music or for the preaching. They come because a friend invites them. You know what else is pretty encouraging? Statistics show that most people will come to church if you have a relationship with them and simply just invite them. Like if they're, not your, fr- if, if they're your friend, they'll likely cl- come if you invite them. And, and you know what else I found interesting and encouraging building off of this? Statistics show that about one in three people share their conversion story back to a personal invitation to church because they were invited by a friend to come and see what Jesus has done. And so let me ask, what friend or family member or coworker do you have a genuine friendship with that you can invite to church for them to come and see and hear for themselves about who Jesus is and what he's done? Again, just think about this. A very simple invitation to church, a very ordinary thing, Statistics show that God uses that simple invitation to church in in an extraordinary way. Again, God uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. But that said, I want to continue working through our text because uh, it starts to get really interesting. Because remember, Philip went to his friend Nathaniel and said, the Messiah is here. Come and see for yourself. And look what Jesus does. I find this so interesting. Verse Verse 47 says, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming towards him and said, said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. So Jesus sees Nathanael, and if this wasn't Jesus speaking, I would think it was a sarcastic comment, um, but that's not what he's doing here. 
Uh, Jesus is calling him an Israelite indeed, a true Israelite. He was an honest Israelite. In essence, saying he was willing to explore the claims of Jesus. But taking this a step further here, Jesus is beginning to appeal to the Old Testament when he's speaking with Nathaniel. He's showing that Jesus sees and he, he, he knows and he understands this man. He knows that Nathaniel knows the Old Testament. And Jesus is beginning to draw from a story from Genesis 27 in the Old Testament when Isaac was trying to bless his oldest son, Esau. Maybe you remember the story. And his, but his, his son Jacob, uh, de, he deceived his father Isaac and he stole the birthright, giving their Israelite lineage a history of deceit. And Jesus sees Nathanael and acknowledges Nathanael's curiosity and honesty to explore if Jesus was the Messiah. So Jesus here was using language with Nathanael that Nathanael would have understood immediately. And it would have drawn his attention back to this story of Jacob in the Old Testament, while at the same time showing that Jesus truly knows Nathanael. And of course, Nathanael, he's, he's curious. And he look, look what he says in verse 48. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So apparently Nathaniel was under a fig tree and something happened under the fig tree. And we don't know what happened. It doesn't tell us. Maybe he had a dream. Maybe he had some sort of vision. Maybe a thought came to mind. We're not sure. Who knows? Maybe he was just taking a nap. Uh, but something happened to Nathaniel under a fig tree. And whatever it is that happened, Jesus knew about it. And Jesus said to Nathaniel, before Philip called you, I saw you under that fig tree. Showing that Jesus ju doesn't just know Nathaniel, but what other people, uh, by what other people have said, kind of like a normal person, um, like hearing things through other people. No, Jesus sees into Nathaniel's soul, and he knows what nobody else knows. And look at Nathaniel's response in verse 49. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And so in many ways in this moment, Jesus was showing a little bit of himself to Nathanael. And Nathanael's response was that Jesus was God. That's what Nathanael said. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And for whatever reason, the fact that Jesus saw him under the fig tree in Nathanael's heart confirmed to Nathanael that Jesus was the son of God. And, and perhaps it was because Nathanael realized in that moment Jesus had a window into his soul that he, he knows all things, that he sees all things, which as we'll continue to see, it's just true for us today. Friends, Jesus knows everything about us. Jesus has a window into our soul. And yet Jesus still went to the cross and he died for us. And because of the cross, he still calls us his beloved children. And again, we can make all sorts of speculations about what Jesus saw with him under the fig tree. But what I want to point out here is that it leads us to see that God also uses number two, extraordinary methods to bring people to Jesus. So I, I don't want to dig too far into this, but I also don't want to just gloss over it because these types of things happen often where people will have a dream or a vision or something will happen or some sort of thought or a change of mind or something, something happens where people begin to open up their heart and tend to be more willing to explore the claims of Jesus. Again, something happened with Nathaniel under the fig tree, and then Philip said, hey, I've met Jesus. Why don't you come with me and see him? And Nathaniel was open to explore it. 
And when he got to Jesus, Jesus confirmed something in his heart. And you know what's funny about this? Philip likely had no idea about any experience Nathaniel had under a fig tree. Like, he had no clue. And there, there are two quick things I want to say about this. First, y'all, just being on the mission field, it has taught me to pray fervently for God to bring dreams and visions to, to people who are far from God. Like, it's not uncommon, specifically for Muslims, to have a dream or a vision that leads them to search for the Bible or to ask questions about Jesus, where they then are led to find a Christian, and those Christians then share the gospel with them, and they respond in faith. I've seen this and know of many stories where this has happened, and because of that, I often pray for our partners to be in places where people have dreams and visions, and for our partners to be there to then help them sort it through and to point them to Jesus. But you know what's also true? A missionary, a person, a Christian needed to be there to point them to Jesus every time. So again, first, let's pray for God to do the miraculous that would lead others to Jesus because God does these things. Again, we do very ordinary things, but then God does the extraordinary. But secondly, which is way more common, just remember, we have no idea what's going on in people's lives and how a simple invitation to church, like we've already talked about, or can, transform, can transform someone's life. We often aren't aware of how far a simple, hey, how can I pray for you, will go. What's very clear throughout the Bible and in Christian history and in our own lives is that God uses significant moments in our lives, like hard moments, low moments, challenging moments to bring people to Jesus. Because in these moments, people are much more likely to be open to conversations about the gospel. And so let me ask, who is it that you know that may have recently gone through something tough or challenging where they may be more open to the truth of the gospel? And hear me on this. This is not a means of manipulation. This is just simply how God works. God's grace and power and mercy and comfort are often most clear in our greatest times of need. Maybe you've heard the saying, you don't know what we, we, don't, we don't know we need the rock until we've hit rock bottom. Again, I say this all the time, and the more I say it, I, the more I realize we need to remember this and believe this. We are a broken church for broken people. And what we know from God's word is that God came to heal the brokenhearted. This is just what God does. And so who is it that you know that visibly needs the healing balm of the gospel? But again, it's typically the very simple, ordinary things that we do for people in these moments that provide, like providing a meal or writing a simple note or picking up the phone and calling or texting and say, hey, I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you today. Or simply just being a shoulder to cry on. Just being present and saying nothing and just listening and being available. Y'all, these small, simple, ordinary things God uses in extraordinary ways. Again, we, just, we do the ordinary, and God brings in the extraordinary. Maybe the simple application for you today is you just need a few friends who are not Christians. Maybe the first step is to simply make a friend and do fun things together and build a genuine friendship. Maybe you've heard the phrase, the gospel moves at the speed of relationships. And y'all, that is so true. If we're not making friends, genuine friends with lost people, the likelihood of the gospel advancing may be more slim. And just as a note of caution, God's word reminds us that it is better to do this with other people who are also following Jesus, so we're not more, uh, so we're not more likely to get pulled down. Like, we, we want to be the ones making an impact and influencing others, not the other way around. Or maybe you have a friend that, you're not, that, that are not Christians, and you know them, and you've invested in them. 
But now, you just need to get them to Jesus. You need to say to them, hey, will you come with me and see who Jesus is? I don't know what this looks like for you, but maybe it's just a simple, like I said, a simple invitation to church. Maybe it's grabbing lunch with them and asking about their life and, and you sharing how the gospel has changed your life. Maybe this week you need to pick up the phone and call or text someone and say, hey, uh, do you want to come to church with me next week? They're, they're serving lunch after church. Would you be willing to come with me? You know, New City Church, we have good news. If Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus truly is the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world, bringing our friends and families to Jesus is the most loving thing we can do. You know what else I, I believe God may be calling us to do today? Simply observing and seeing how God can use us in just our everyday, ordinary lives. Maybe it's through things like serving on Sunday, serving back in the tech booth, helping with move trailers, serving in kids, helping tear down unfolded drapes, helping move chairs. I mean, nothing glamorous. These are all ordinary things, but yet God uses every act of service in extraordinary ways. You know, many of, the, many of my heroes of the faith are people who have moved cross-culturally as missionaries in unengaged, unreached parts of the world, sacrificing a lot, doing something that seems extraordinary. In a lot of ways, it is. But you know what? Most missionaries, as I've already said, yes, are doing something extraordinary with their life. But when you look at their day-to-day -day life, in all actuality, it's actually very ordinary. Many of the local nationals that I served with overseas who are starting house church movements in Central Asia, seeing gospel advance in miraculous ways, you know what they're doing on their day-to-day -day basis? They own vegetable shops. There were security guards at a school. Many of the women were nannies. All very ordinary things, living very ordinary lives, but then they were meeting with Jesus daily. They made friends, and they brought them to Jesus, doing incredibly extraordinary work advancing the kingdom of God. Again, I believe and I'm sure that God uses our very ordinary lives for his extraordinary purposes. This is how God works and moves and advances his kingdom uh, through very ordinary, mundane, everyday ways. But all that being said, I want to I close our time today by looking at our last two verses. Um, and like I said, it's a bit of a riddle, so hang with me as we kind of land the plane today. And remember, Jesus, he said he saw Nathaniel under a fig tree, and because of that, Nathaniel's res responded by saying, oh, you're the son of God. That, that's kind of where we are in the story. And look at verse 50 to finish our text, 50 and 51. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open, see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Jesus is like, oh, you may, that made you believe. Well, you just wait, brother. I've got something way better. And in verse 51, I think it's really interesting. This is kind of our riddle. And this happens, uh, this happens often with Jesus. He gets asked a question and he answers the question with a riddle. And look at verse 51. I want to read it again. This is what he said would be better. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Again, I know we're kind of getting to the end of our time today, but let me just explain this quickly. Do you remember earlier how Jesus was beginning to allude to the story of Jacob and Esau in Genesis 27? Do you remember that? You guys remember that? Now Jesus is getting into Genesis 28. When Jacob had a dream one night after he lays his head down on a stone where there is a ladder set up on earth and it says the top of the ladder reached to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. 
It kind of paints the picture of angels going up and down from heaven on this ladder. And this, this is often referred to as Jacob's ladder in Genesis 28. And at the top of this ladder, the Lord is standing there and he tells Jacob, your, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and spread all over the world and be blessed. And the Lord says, behold, I am with you and I will keep you. Wherever you will go, I'll bring you back to this land. And I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. And Jacob wakes up and says, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And what's interesting in our, in our John passage, is that when Jesus alludes to Jacob's ladder in Genesis 28, he takes out the ladder from the picture in the story, and he inserts the Son of Man, which is Jesus. Where in essence, Jesus is now saying, Jesus is the ladder to heaven. Jesus is the ladder that will get us to God. The cross where Jesus bled and died, that is our doorway to heaven. And if you're here today, let me ask you the question again, what are you searching for? What are you seeking? What ladder are you trying to climb? And just as Jesus points out, the only ladder that will get us to God is trusting and following Jesus. By trusting what Jesus talked about that would be better, by trusting in our good news that Jesus came to earth and lived the life that we could not live and then died the death that we deserve. And when we get to God, we can, and we can get to God through Jesus, Jesus is our way to God. Listen, we think we need to climb a ladder to get to God to do a bunch of good deeds and to be a nice person, uh, but those are not good enough. Believing in Jesus and following him is the only ladder that gets us to God. Jesus, getting us, Jesus gets us to God. This is the greater thing that Jesus talked about here that Nathaniel did not yet see. And then in all of this, you know what really caught my attention this week from this passage? Kind of stepping back from a bigger picture. So in this passage, Jesus is beginning to show us that he sees past, he sees the present, and he also sees the future. That Jesus knows all things. And we're starting to see that Jesus, he has a window into our soul. He knows our past, he sees our future, all of our mistakes, all of our failures, past, present, and future. And yet Jesus still went to the cross on our behalf, and he still uses us. And he still gives us a plan and a purpose. Like Jesus sees our very ordinary lives. He sees our past crazy lives, everything we've ever done. He sees our future. And with that, he says, go and do ordinary things for the Lord so that God can use them for his extraordinary purposes. New City Church, that's our call today. We have an extraordinary truth in the gospel with an extraordinary Savior that shows up uh, that shows us that Jesus is our ladder to God, while yet God calls us to do very ordinary things and to reveal and, and show this extraordinary truth of the gospel. Again, God uses the ordinary to, to accomplish the extraordinary. Let's pray. God, we, we realize our limitations as people. God, we realize that you, you have a... a a grand plan that involves the entire world coming to know and worship Jesus. And Father, you, your plan to see worshipers all over the world, including in here in Tampa, in this room, is for us, your, your followers, to do very ordinary things to bring people to Jesus. Father, will we go out this week uh, and invest in friendships and, and then bring them to Jesus? God, we need you. You are good. You're kind and you're great. 
Father, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.